I was really captured, um, as I think I have been captured by this, this kind of theme for a while now, our Alleluia verse. God has called us through the gospel to possess the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. God has called us to possess the glory that belongs to Jesus. Just to take a minute and think about that and like let it try to let it sink into your heart that your life is meant to have the same glory as Jesus. Scripture tells us, St. Paul tells us in the scriptures, that at the name of Jesus, at the mere mention of the name of Jesus, every knee shall bend. Those on the earth, those above the earth, and those under the earth. That's the kind of glory that belongs to him, just to his name. In the book of Revelation, it talks about how uh, at, the, at the end in heaven, all nations will be gathered. Those who are written, those whose names are written in the book of life will be gathered to worship the Lamb, who is Jesus, right? Behold the Lamb of God, that is Jesus. They bow down and sing praises to Jesus because his glory is so magnificent. And the Lord, Scripture tells us, invites us to share in that glory. Your life, my life, is meant to possess the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like this is, this is something that has to capture our attention. This is something that our attention has to hold on to. And we have to ask ourselves, okay, if this is the case, how do I possess that glory? How, how, how is this possible? And how, like, do I need to do anything to, to make it happen? And in some ways, we can't earn it, right? Like, this is, God has called us. And so if, if we're going to possess the glory of Jesus, it's not something that we can make happen. But at the same time, right, he has called us, and so we have to respond. So if it's the case that, that me receiving and you receiving the glory of Jesus, it depends on you and me responding to his call, we need to ask ourselves, how can we respond? And the answer to this, I think, can be found beginning in our psalm for the day, which is actually psalms are rarely preached about. It's found in our psalm, and then, of course, it's found in Jesus, right? Because if we're possessing the glory of Jesus, then it only makes sense for us to look to Jesus to find out how exactly that can happen. But first, our psalm, right? So uh, just, the Lord upholds my life, Psalm 54. So if you ever read in the psalms, in the Bible, uh, sometimes you'll notice that at the beginning of the psalm, before the psalm even begins, there's like in small letters, a, a tiny little description of the psalm. Sometimes those are helpful and sometimes they're not helpful. I think in this particular case, it's very helpful. So what it says in my Bible at the top of Psalm 54 is it says, 
to the choir master with stringed instruments, a maskal of David. When the Ziphites went and told Saul, David is in hiding among us. So that's meant to give us the context. And uh, what, what I had to do was when I read about this context, I had to do a Google search. When, when did the Ziphites go to tell Saul that David was hiding among them? And from there, Google, because Google knows everything, right? Google told me where to look in the Bible, and I found it in uh, the first book of Samuel, chapter 23, and then it actually happens again in chapter 26. So here's, here's kind of the background of that. So we know, right, God chooses his people, the Israelites. We know this, right? We, it begins with Abraham, but maybe the story makes this dramatic entrance with the story of Moses, right? Moses and the people are in Egypt. They're being enslaved. And this is when God speaks to Moses and says, you need to go to Pharaoh and tell him that he needs to let his people go. All the plagues happen. Moses leads the people across the, the Red Sea on dry land, and the Egyptians are drowned in the sea. From there, they're in the desert for 40 years. But at that point, they're called the Israelites. This is God's chosen people, and he makes promises to them that he's going to lead them into a land flowing with milk and honey. After Moses dies, Joshua becomes the new leader of God's people, and he leads them into the promised land. This land flowing with milk and honey, which, which is called Israel, right? So the Israelites are living in the land, and as they're living in the land, they're looking around at the other nations around them, the other people around them, and they're noticing that the other nations have kings. They have rulers over them, and so the people want to be like the other nations, and so they demand of God, give us a king. This isn't part of God's plan, but God relents and he, he gives to them a king. And their first king is King Saul. So Samuel goes and he anoints Saul as the king. Saul is the anointed one. And Saul, as the king, begins really well. He's following the Lord's commandments. He's keeping the ways of the Lord. He's turning the people's hearts to God. But then slowly over time, Saul begins to be disobedient to God. Saul allows his own heart to be turned away from the Lord. And when the king's heart is turned away from the Lord, you can believe that the people begin to turn away from the Lord. And so the Lord begins, it says, to almost like regret that, he's, that he made Saul the first king. And so he sends Samuel to find another man. And this other man, of course, we know is David. David is a king that God says, a king after, a man after my own heart. David is ready to keep the commands of the Lord. Of course, we know later on in the story that David is not always perfect, that he actually commits some incredibly grave sins. But nonetheless, at the time that he was anointed as the king, the, the rightful heir to the throne, David is a man after the Lord's own heart. He's ready to keep the Lord's commands, to keep the Lord ever present in his heart. So anyways, he's anointed king, but Saul is still the king, right? So David is gonna be the one who replaces him. But Saul is still the king. And Saul finds out that David is growing in popularity and fame after he kills Goliath and after he does all these amazing things for the Lord and for the kingdom. And so Saul gets jealous of David, envious, to the point that he wants to kill him. So David, knowing that Saul wants to kill him, he has to go and run and he flees into the wilderness to hide from Saul. One of the places he goes is to the land of the Ziphites. So in, in 1 Samuel 23, we, re we read this. 
Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Does not David hide among us in the strongholds at Horesh, on the hill of Hakalah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And this, again, like I said, it happens again in 1 Samuel 26, three chapters later. Right? So these people, David is the anointed one of God. He's, God has made promises to him to, to give him the kingdom of Israel. And yet, what's he finding? That it's almost like the moment he's anointed, the moment that he begins working for God and for his kingdom, he suffers persecution and trial and betrayal. Right? So you can imagine David, as, as he's finding out that the Ziphites, these people who he was hiding in their land, you can imagine as he's finding out that they went and betrayed him, like what's going through his mind? What the heck, Lord? You're the one who anointed me. I didn't, I didn't choose this. In fact, I'm not the one who, like, I don't even look like I'd be a really good king. You can imagine his thoughts running in his mind, like, Lord, I just want to serve you, and here you are. It seems like you're making all these terrible things happen to me. This doesn't make sense. We can imagine that's what's going on in his mind, and yet, Psalm 54 is written in response to that betrayal that we just talked about. What does David say, in fact? O God, by your name, save me, and by your might, defend my cause. O God, hear my prayer, hearken to the words of my mouth. For the haughty have risen up against me, the ruthless seek my life. They set not God before their eyes. Behold, God is my helper, the Lord sustains my life. Freely will I offer you sacrifice. I will praise your name, O Lord, for its goodness. You see, David, in response to the betrayal, in response to the trials, in response to the persecution that the Lord, for some reason, is allowing him to encounter or to experience, David begins by asking for God's help, absolutely, but he, be, he ends by saying, freely, I will offer you sacrifice anyway. And I will give praise to your name, O Lord, for its goodness. Right? David sees that no, even though he's the anointed one of God, the rightful heir to the throne of the kingship of Israel, that somehow, for some reason, the Lord is allowing him to encounter this time of suffering. And even in the suffering, he still is going to sacrifice to the Lord and give thanks to him and praise his name because he sees how good God is. Now, that's an example of David. Let's think of another anointed one who encountered persecution and betrayal. Who can come to your mind? Jesus. Jesus Christ. The word Christ means anointed one. Jesus is the anointed. If David was the anointed king of Israel, Jesus is the anointed one of God, the anointed king of the universe. And yet, what happens to him? We know, actually, we know that Jesus was betrayed by one of his best friends. 
We know that he was persecuted by the very people that he was sent to rescue from sin. We know that he endured every sort of trial, even to the point of having to die on the cross. And yet, what does Jesus do? Well, we say this every Mass, right? What do we say? We say, at the time he was betrayed and entered willingly into his passion, he took bread and giving thanks, broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take this all of you and eat of it for this is my body, which will be given up for you. In a similar way, when supper was ended, he took the chalice and once more giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples saying, take this all of you and drink from it. For this is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant, which will be poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus, the anointed one of God, encounters betrayal and persecution and suffering. And what does he do? In the midst of that, he willingly sacrifices himself to the Father and he gives thanks to the Father. In the midst of those things, the Eucharist, after all, means thanksgiving. It's as though Jesus knows what's going to happen. And it's not even as though. Jesus knew what was about to happen. And what did he do? He said thanks to God in advance. This is the example, brothers and sisters, that you and I are meant to follow. And this is the way that we are to respond to God in such a way that you and I can come to possess the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we know that Jesus endured betrayal, he endured suffering, he endured persecution to the point that he died. And so it actually appeared at one point like his life was not glorious. It appeared as though his life was meant for nothing but hopeless despair, that his mission was ultimately failure. But we know as Christians, we know that he actually rose from the dead and ascended to the Father and sits at his right hand, reigning over the entire universe, where he sits in glory. This is the glory, brothers and sisters, that you and I are meant to possess, not a worldly kind of glory, not the kind of glory that leads to worldly comforts, but instead it's the kind of glory that can only fully be possessed in heaven with God. And so how do, we, how do we properly respond to God? How do we appropriately respond to God who literally gave everything for us? We, in turn, give everything for him. Practically speaking, what does that mean? In this case, practically speaking, it means whenever you encounter suffering, whenever you encounter betrayal, whenever you encounter persecution or inconvenience of any kind, to give thanks to God in the midst of that. This is a lesson that I've, I've had to learn and I'm still having to learn it. That when someone comes and interrupts my day and asks me to do something that I don't wanna do, or when someone makes a complaint about me, or when someone uh, tells me a lie and I know that they're lying to me, or when, when I, when I wake up in the middle of the night and I can't fall asleep again, right? I'm, whatever kind of suffering it is, whatever kind of inconvenience it is, sometimes for righteous reasons, sometimes for 
neutral reasons, whatever it is, whatever kind of suffering it is, I've learned and I'm still learning to simply say under my breath, thank you, Lord. Because the inconveniences, the sufferings, the persecutions, the trials, whatever it may be that you and I encounter in this life, God doesn't wish them upon us, but he allows us to encounter them for the one purpose of calling our mind to something greater, to remind us that this world isn't all that we're living for, but in fact that we're living for an even greater, better world that is to come. We're living not for worldly comfort, but we're living for eternal glory. So that whatever suffering you and I encounter in this world, it's not worth comparing to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us, that awaits all of those who are faithful to Jesus Christ while we're alive here on this earth. It's an incredibly gifted lesson, brothers and sisters, that we have an opportunity to learn, to give thanks to the Lord in all things and above all, to give thanks to him in the midst of suffering and trial and persecution and betrayal. Because it's in that that we imitate Jesus. It's in imitating Jesus that we begin to think no longer as human beings, but we can think like God, which leads to having glory like God.